This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Yeah, so yeah, this long walk for water. Um, and it's not just long, six kilometers on average. Um, it's backbreaking work. I mean, if you've ever carried 40 pounds of water in your head for very long, you know that that's not an easy thing to do. And that results in, in, um, in struggles for, for women and children. This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, a podcast where we're learning how to do good better. I'm Kent Anning, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, and I'm joined by my colleagues Jamie Ayton and Laura Finch to explore how we can more effectively love our neighbors from everyday acts of kindness to the most complex humanitarian challenges facing the church and society today. Dr. Greg Allgood is our guest today. He's Vice President of Water for World Vision. In this role, Greg leads the establishment of alliances with corporations, foundations, and individuals to enable World Vision to bring access to clean water to millions more people around the world. Greg, thank you for being with us. We're so glad that you're here. It was my pleasure. We've really been looking forward to this conversation. Um, Greg, as we think about this within the framework of the Better Samaritan, helping the person by the side of the road who's been robbed and beaten up metaphorically, as well as making the road safer, do you talk about the, just in a really big picture overview, how does access to clean water amplify other poverty issues? How does water build into the systematic way that people experience poverty and that we should be thinking about poverty? Yeah, they're, they're very much linked. And in, in fact, uh, I like to say that if you're going to eliminate extreme poverty, you have to solve the global water crisis. It's really impossible not to do to do that. Um, there are about 785 million people on the planet that don't have access to a basic clean water source. That's more than one out of every 10 people on the planet. Um, and, and people are forced to drink from highly contaminated water sources because they're drinking from streams and rivers and creeks. Um, and that means they're drinking water that's full of bacteria, viruses, and parasites. The net result is that more than 800 children die every day from drinking contaminated water, having poor sanitation and hygiene in their environments. Um, and here's the biggest tragedy of that. This is something we know how to solve. You know, we, we don't need to invent something new to solve this. And, and so there's a moral imperative that we look up the road and see how, how can we address this issue? The good news is, is that we've provided clean water to more than 2 billion people in the last 20 years. So we know that we can, we can get this done. When you provide clean water in a community, it really transforms that community. So before clean water, kids may be getting sick from diarrhea, dysentery, cholera. Um, they have to haul water, so they're missing school. Women and children are the ones who bear the brunt of hauling water. So they're missing school or missing out on um, opportunities to, to earn a living. And so when you bring water in, that changes a lot. Kids aren't getting sick. They can go to school. Women can improve their um, livelihoods. And you literally see extreme poverty being washed away from that community. 
And could you share could you share a little bit more about kind of the overall work that World Vision is doing around clean water and maybe specifically what you're focused on these days? Yeah, so a little bit more than a decade ago, World Vision decided that if you're going to end extreme poverty, you really have to get water right. And so we began developing business plans that brought together our the countries that we're working in with our, our donor supporters. Um, and that generated a plan to reach uh, specific numbers of people. And it allowed us to be very transparent and be held accountable for what our goals were. Uh, we hoped that by the end of that plan that we would be um, reaching uh, a, a million people over the first five years. But actually, we ended up so we could reach a million people in a single year. We became the largest non-governmental provider of clean drinking water. So we set our goals even higher. Um, the time that the sustainable development goals were set in uh, in September of 2015, uh, we were there. World Vision was there with our, our donors and our partners, and we made an audacious commitment. That was to lay out a blueprint for how we would achieve the sustainable development goals of reaching everybody everywhere we work with clean water by 2030. That's some 50 million people. That was a long ways off in September of 2015. So we set an interim goal to hold ourselves accountable and so other people could, could track our progress. That was a five-year goal to reach 20 million people. Now, at the time, only five years back, we were reaching 200,000 people a year. To, to set a goal of five years reaching 20 million was a God-sized vision. We announced in, um, in February that we had achieved that goal. On January 29th, of Loveness Ferry and her family were the representative 20 millionth people to be reached with clean water by World Vision and our partners. And, you know, that's just uh, mind boggling that we could reach that many people. But each one of those 20 million people's lives has really been transformed. Greg, can you talk talk about, you know, maybe it's that family or, or talk about a community. Like I, I'm thinking I, I lived in Haiti for a number of years and worked there for many years, you know, so one of the places we were we would help walk back and forth probably a hundred yards or so to water there was a tap relatively nearby use a filter but then another place we lived you know there's no running water and it was kind of mountainous area and you know the water was it was unstable source it was mountainous it was a long walk and it would be often wouldn't be unusual for 50 50 mostly women and children you know to be gathered there waiting for water it was a you know, a long hike away for some of them. Some of them would be 45 minutes, an hour away. You know, so these are some of the circumstances of the people you're working with. Can you talk about one, you know, what do you do to help a community get cleaner water? And two, how do you help with access? Like what's, what's the technology, what's happening? Uh, so we can really get into the detail, the specifics of, of how do you do this work? How do you make a difference for people? Yeah, so yeah, this long walk for water, um, and it's not just long, six kilometers on average. Um, it's backbreaking work. I mean, if you've ever carried 40 pounds of water on your head for very long, you know that that's not an easy thing to do. And that results in, in, um, in struggles for, for women and children. I tried. I tried. I wasn't very good at it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've tried and I spilled a lot of it. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's tough work. You know, it, fun, it may be fun for us for five minutes, but uh, to do that day in, day out. And there's no days off. If you want your family to have water that day, whether it's Christmas Day or the day you'd like to go to church on Sunday, you're walking for water or people go without. Um, and so that's really 
you know, you're, you're a slave to having to, to collect water. So that's why it's so important. Um, women and children are estimated to spend 200 million hours in aggregate every single day hauling water. Imagine the potential we can unleash when we, when we do away with that, when people have water near their homes. So that's, that's why that's such an important, one of the reasons it's such an important thing to address. Um, when we first started our business plans to build up our work in water, 95% of what we did was to use a drilling rig, drill, uh, drill a borehole, um, and then put in a hand pump. 95% of what we did. Now it's only about 5% of what we're doing. So we've really turned that completely around. So what are we doing? We're being much more intentional about looking at what's going to be most sustainable based on that local situation. What's most cost effective? What's most sustainable? So sometimes it may be that borehole with a hand pump, but more often than not, it's a solar mechanized system where we still drill that borehole. We put in a submersible pump. We power it with an overhead array of solar panels. So we use the energy of the sun, renewable energy of the sun to pump the water up into this overhead storage tank that's put in a high spot in the community where then by gravity it can go throughout the community. And not just near people's homes, but directly into the schools and directly into healthcare centers. And that's incredibly important because if you're going to healthcare for center, for example, and you're a, a, a pregnant woman who's about to deliver a baby, the last thing you want to be doing is bringing your own water to wash yourself and your baby after you deliver. But unfortunately, that's the case. No water also means no ways for doctors and nurses to wash their hands between seeing patients. Um, so we are a leader as well in providing comprehensive water, sanitation, hygiene in schools and in healthcare centers. And this can really uh, dramatically reduce the chances of infections that you can get in a healthcare center if you have unhygienic conditions. And Greg, as you were sharing there, you were talking about this idea of unleashed possible potential from others that if people weren't having to spend so much time focused on carrying the water back and forth. So just curious, how have you seen maybe in a particular community or even a family, how impactful clean water that you all have helped provide? How, how have you seen that make a difference for others? Well, I'll tell you a story of, of a community I visited not too long ago in Zambia. Um, it was a um, a mother of several children. Her name was Veronica, and she's from Luimbo um, in Zambia. It's a rural community. And before World Vision w brought a water point there, it was like many parts of Zambia. It's a very low-income country, landlocked in Southern Africa. Um, of the 17 million people, 7 million of them don't have access to a basic clean water source. And that leads to, uh, as we mentioned before, illness. In this case, sustained um, severe diarrhea led to her child um, being undernourished. And then that progressed to her losing a child. You know, we know that unfortunately half of malnutrition is due to diarrheal illness. So this was not unusual, unfortunately. Then World Vision brought a water source into her home, a solar powered mechanized water source. Not only did she have water um, near her home, she literally had it at her homestead. And so she was using it to garden and her garden had increased in size. Um, and that brought her income because you're able to sell some of the produce and better nutrition for her family. We happened to be there on the day that her oldest son, Owen, 
had just gotten his school uniform so he could go to high school, the, the first of her children to go to high school. And, and Owen was so proud to show us his uniform. And, and Veronica was definitely a proud mother. So you literally could see how when water flowed into that community, diseases went away, incomes went up, and extreme poverty was being eliminated. And what are the biggest challenges, Greg? It's, it's almost a cliche in development work, you know, that water has been this place, like you mentioned, where pumps go in, they work for a few years, they break, and then the community doesn't have water anymore. How have you kept on learning? So it's like how part of what we do in this podcast is explore, you know, we keep getting better. We have to keep getting better at being Samaritans. The world is complex. Helping people is complex. We're always learning. So you mentioned the technology. Are there any other changes, like things that you've learned along the way uh, to ensure that it, it really is a sustainable solution for people? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, learning and improvement is really part of World Vision's DNA. Uh, I've seen that since I joined them. Um, and it's just part of the way we do business. And we do it by working with some of the top academic partners to help us get better, whether that's Stanford University, uh, helping us get better at our, our work to um, teach kids in schools to a partnership we have with Sesame Street and Raya and Elmo, um, or it's the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Water Institute. We've done two of the largest studies that have ever been done, comprehensively looking at our work in many countries of how we're providing water access, uh, sanitation, and, and hygiene education. Um, these are the largest, one of them was the largest study that was ever done. And we're sharing that work with the entire sector. Um, one of the things that helped us get better at is sustainability of water points. Um, this is a really incredibly important uh, aspect of the sector that needs better attention. Uh, in fact, prior to our work with the UNC Water Institute, the Conrad N. Hilton Foundation uh, wanted to look at sustainability of water points. They have funded World Vision longer than any other organization. Uh, we've been partnering with them for, for about 30 years. Uh, they're the largest foundation that supports water work, uh, more than any other, any other foundation. Um, and they started their work in a rural area of Ghana called the Afram Plains. It had a very high rate of trachoma and guinea worm, that debilitating disease, and also death of children from diarrhea. And so a lot of water points were put in that area. And praise God, it has eliminated guinea worm and eliminated trachoma, trachoma just as of a couple of years ago. But they wanted to look at the sustainability of those water points. And so they worked with the UNC Water Institute and there was enough of a sample size in that area where so many water points have been provided that they can compare World Vision to non-World Vision water points. What they saw with the non-World Vision water points was that the older they were, the more likely they were going to not be functioning. Um, as had been reported previously in the literature, you can have um, rates of dysfunction as high as 50% within two years. But for the World Vision water points, it was very different, dramatically different. There was no impact of age. So whether the water point was two years old or more than 20, and, more, and many of them were in this area, we've been working for so long, there was no decrease in the sustainability of the water point. And it's not that they didn't break down. It's that the community took ownership of them because what World Vision does is work with the community, create a water committee that charges a small affordable fee so that there's money available to make those repairs when their water point breaks down. Uh, we've gone further with that research directly in a relationship with UNC. We found that the secret to um, the long-lasting water committee, which results in the long-lasting water point, 
is having women in leadership roles on the water committees. It makes a lot of sense because it's women who know they'll have the burden of going back to hauling water if something goes wrong. So the first one is to know uh, when something ne may need to be uh, maintained and repaired. And we'll do whatever it takes to make sure that that water point is up and running as fast as possible. Greg, as we think about this, you know, there's the individual and community cases we've been looking at, but we've had this incredible experience of COVID during this past year, which none of us would have wished for, but it also became this experiment with water on a global level in a sense. And, you know, some of the things that we saw was a 500% reduction of sewage in some rivers uh, in India, purity levels. We saw the Grand Canal of Italy turn clear, um, you know, this kind of impact around the world. What did you, what did you see as you've been focused on water? What did you see in the effects of COVID? And also what should we learn from what we saw and experienced in COVID related to water in this past year? Yeah, we, we learned a tremendous amount. Um, you know, these short-term changes because everything was shut down of things like water clarity, of quality getting better, um, those were not addressing systemic issues. So we're, as we open back up, we'll have those, those issues of pollution that, that we need to address. But what we did learn um, that uh, hopefully we can carry through is the critical importance of uh, ways to prevent the spread of deadly infectious diseases. Simple ways like soap and water, right? Washing your hands that we, we all heard about. Um, we take that for granted in the U.S., but in the developing world, that's a, that's a huge issue. Half of the schools in Africa don't have soap and water for, for kids to wash their schools. Healthcare facilities in the areas that World Vision works, the toughest to reach places, the most rural areas, healthcare facilities, 80% of them do not have a way for doctors and nurses and patients to wash their hands. So you can imagine that they become ways of spreading infectious diseases. Now, one of the other things that we were really blessed with during the pandemic was the fact that the donor partners who have supported World Vision for decades and more built up this army of people to address the pandemic. Um, we have 1,200 water sanitation hygiene professionals, and their job is to prevent the spread of deadly infectious diseases by provided, providing water, hand washing stations, education. And we do that by working with faith leaders. Because we're a faith-based group, we're uniquely positioned to, to know how to work with faith leaders. This year, we really ramped that effort up in response to COVID. We trained 21,000 faith leaders on the critical ways to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Now, just imagine that ramping out to all of their congregations and the huge impact it would have. Because of our work, more than a million households now have hand-washing facilities that did not have them before. Um, and we really upped our game in reaching schools and healthcare facilities as well. This is something we really hope and pray lasts and, and isn't just a short term um, that this this surge in the amount of work that we're doing in, in sanitation, hygiene and water um, isn't just during this year, but we'll, we'll continue. And Greg, as you reflect on all these lessons that you've learned over the years of doing this important work, curious, what are some of the things that could maybe also be transported to help here in the U.S. in terms of maybe there's a church in Jackson, Mississippi, for example, where we're starting to see some water issues that are occurring or thinking about what happened in Flint, Michigan with the water crisis there. What are some things that church leaders could learn from your work to be able to make a difference in their own backyards? You know, most of our work at World Vision has, has traditionally been in the developing world, you know, places like Somalia and Haiti and, and Kenya and Bangladesh. 
Um, we have done some work in the U.S. for, for years, but um, to your point, we really ramped that up during during this time, um, and we did it through churches. So uh, we knew there was an issue with hunger, you know, large numbers of Americans not being able to feed their families. So we teamed up with the U.S. government and their um, fields to, to um, farmers to fields effort. Early in the pandemic, we saw that there were crops rotting in the fields and we saw that people were hungry at the same time. Well, USDA funded groups like World Vision and including World Vision to take those crops and, and nutritious foods and to get them to people. And the way that we solved getting them to people was through local churches. And so those became distribution points to provide meals to, to more than a million families on an ongoing basis during, during the pandemic. So teaming up uh, between NGOs and churches uh, can make a lot of sense. Uh, and, and, you know, the, just like in the developing world, uh, where those uh, church leaders are the trusted people in the communities, of course, we see that in the U.S. as well. And, and it's a, a great way to respond. In fact, uh, we did that most recently for the, the lack of water in Texas. Uh, so here we're providing not boreholes, but bottled water. Uh, but we did that uh, emergency plot supplies through, through our church partners in, in Houston. Thanks, Greg. And now we want to transition into the way we close these. all of these interviews is what we call the Samaritan Big Five. There are five big questions that we ask you to answer in 20 or 30 seconds. So they, they, uh, because we want to know kind of how you're thinking about these issues of becoming better Samaritans for each of us in your work and helping us to think about that too. So uh, the first question is, what's something that has surprised you in your work recently? What surprised my work recently is the fact that um, we can finish the job. And the biggest impediment to people partnering with groups that do work in the developing world is not believing that we can finish the job. We drew a line in the set, sand and said, we wanna finish the job of providing clean water to everybody, everywhere, everywhere we work in Rwanda. And the response from our US donors has been amazing. We raised $30 million uh, within three years. We thought it would take five years. And, and what are some of the ways that you've personally been learning to do good better? You know, one of the things that uh, really fuels me is uh, spending time with the people that we serve. And um, you, you quickly learn that um, joy is not based on income. Um, joy and fulfillment is based on what's in your heart and, and, you know, with your family, loved ones and friends. And so they teach me an enormous amount. Uh, I really miss that during this time of the pandemic. Uh, we're doing it virtually, uh, but it's not the same, but, but it does help. And so uh, we're connecting with our field staff, with the people that we're serving and doing it in new ways. And the silver lining is that we're actually have been able to reach more people because not everybody can travel to an Africa or, or to an Asia or Central America. And so uh, we're able to reach more people during these times because of the use of technology. That's yeah, that's great. Great answer. I resonate with that, with missing that, but then finding these new ways to connect with more people. Third question, how do you define humility in the context of doing good in your field, whether that's working in development or specifically in water? How do you define humility? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Not one I've thought about, but when we um, show up in doing our work, um, we show up as Christian workers. And our mantra, if you will, is to uh, boldly but humbly declare our faith. Um, and and humbly means... Um, you know, showing that our motivation for doing the work is uh, following Jesus's example. Um, the humbly part is, is that we want to provoke people to ask the question, you know, why are you doing this work? What's your motivation? And that then gives us a chance to explain our, our motivations and our, 
our walk to follow Jesus. And what's one thing you think could make the road safer, especially as it applies to the water work you're doing? Well, you know, I've been blessed to, to work in water for a long time now, and I'm continually reminded how just critically important it is to any good development. And the progress that we're making now in solving the global water crisis, of all the 17 sustainable development goals that we have to eliminate extreme poverty, I'm more encouraged than ever that we're actually going to be able to, to reach goal number six, to, to solve the global water crisis. And, you know, we're, we're finishing the job in Rwanda. Um, we're just announcing that we have a new plan for Zambia. Then we're going to have a plan for Ghana. Then we're going to have a plan for Honduras. So country after country, we're going to get the job done and make sure that everybody, everywhere we work, has clean water. And how do you sustain hope in your work, maybe especially when it's discouraging? You talk about the progress, but also you see see suffering and some of the progress is probably going slower than you'd like sometimes. Uh, how do you sustain your hope in this kind of work? Well, hope for us as, as World Vision staff stems from two different directions. It's from um, the people that we serve and spending time from them. I remember a woman once when we first brought water to that village with a, a drilling rig and the water came up. And, and she stared in amazement and she said, how did you get the water under the ground? I told her it's, it's always been there. And she looked amazed, but she said, it's always been there and I've always been walking for water. And so, you know, it, it's heartbreaking to think that, you know, something so simple as, as you know, drilling down into the earth can provide sustained water for her. The other source of hope is, is the people that partner with us, the, the churches, um, the donor partners, um, that give sacrificially so that, you know, they can be part of helping other people, going beyond themselves to help others. That's a lot of, that brings a lot of hope and joy. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the world with your colleagues. Uh, we're grateful for the communities who are working to, you know, partner with you to bring water to their communities. It's really encouraging to hear about the, the progress when we know this, you know, as we talk about these systemic issues, that water is such a key one in helping people in extreme poverty. You mentioned churches there at the end and how important they are. Could you just wrap up and share, you know, if a church or individual wanted to partner with World Vision in helping more people get access to clean water, how would they do that with you? Yeah, it's very, very easy to, to help provide people with clean water, sanitation, hygiene. Uh, on average, we actually reach one person with uh, sustainable clean water access, hygiene, education, sanitation for only $50. Um, and we have a global water fund uh, that we take when there's donations from from um, U.S. donors, we're able to multiply that by getting donations from corporations, foundations, um, government grants, and actually one dollar then becomes five dollars of impact. Um, that's a tremendous multiplier. And so, um, so yeah, we would encourage people to to go to worldvision.org and learn more about how they can partner with us to help end the global water crisis. Well, thank you, Greg. So great to be with you. Thank you for this conversation and uh, look forward to staying in touch in the future. Thank you so much for having me. God bless you. Thanks for joining us with for this conversation uh, with Greg. I found it really encouraging. I hope you did too. Uh, encouraging on three different levels, I think. One is uh, the progress that's being made on getting access to clean water to people in extreme poverty. What a difference that makes in people's lives. I've seen that firsthand many, many times. Um, and to know that they're moving forward on these goals and each one of those, those numbers are individual lives and families' lives and girls' and women's lives. Uh, second is, 
how water is this systemic issue. We talk about, you know, fixing the road, making the road safer. And this water is a way for us to think about not just helping in the short term, but the long term, making the road safer. And the third is the importance of partnerships. It's just good to be reminded again and again, the partnerships that happen in local communities so that local communities are finding their solutions in partnership with others and also the kind of partnerships here in the U.S. that help make pull the resources together so that communities can move forward towards flourishing in the way that God would have them flourish. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for being part of these conversations as together we keep seeking to do good better. Thanks for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. You can find links to the things we mentioned during this episode in the show notes. And special thanks to the brilliance for this fantastic music theme. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. You can also follow the Humanitarian Disaster Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next week as we continue learning to do good better. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.